Okay, this is Dr. Jeff again, and welcome back to this podcast on all about childhood cancer. Um, Like I've said before, I'm sorry to find you listening to this. I'm sorry that children get cancer and get leukemia at all. And um, I'm, I'm sorry that you're listening to it because it probably means that a loved one of yours has uh, one of these diseases, cancer or leukemia. And, and uh, so I feel very much for you and, and hope that you're finding a path forward. Anyway, this is our third episode of the All About Childhood Cancer podcast series. Today I'm going to talk about acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's a particular form of leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, usually abbreviated as ALL. Now, you should have listened to the earlier podcast that explained about childhood leukemia more broadly. That would have explained to you what leukemia is, that it's, it's a cancer that develops in the bone marrow. Um, so basically, Uh, One of the cells in the bone marrow that should have been making normal blood cells instead has become a cancer cell and it's divided from one into two, into four, into eight and then into billions and billions and billions and eventually has ended up occupying most of the bone marrow space and that's caused a problem because it stopped the bone marrow from doing what it should be doing which is making blood. At the same time It's caused problems of its own by infiltrating other parts of the body, causing big lymph glands, causing pain in the bones, causing all sorts of things. And and so that's what leukaemia is. I also explained that acute leukaemia means that it's a disease that progresses rapidly and can make a child very sick within just a matter of weeks compared to chronic leukaemia that adults tend to get. And that's the one where they take some years usually to deteriorate. I also explained that in the days of modern treatment that we have now that acute leukaemia actually can have a better outlook than the chronic leukaemias provided you have access to good treatment. Anyway, first off I want to explain then what what it is about acute lymphoblastic leukaemia that makes it lymphoblastic. What does that lymphoblastic word mean? Or lymphoid or lymphocytic, this lymph word. Okay, so first I want to explain that. Now like I said, in the earlier podcast, in the bone marrow, we have what's called the bone marrow stem cell. And this is the big granddaddy cell that sits in the bone marrow, and there's probably thousands or millions or billions of them. But anyway, their job is to pump out more cells that then produce more cells that then produce more cells that produce the final blood cells that we have running around our bloodstream. So the granddaddy stem cell is capable of forming all the different blood cells. But what it does is it divides, makes another copy of itself, and also makes another cell, and then that cell divides into two, and then those two into four, and those two into eight, and these are all normal cells. But as they keep dividing, some of them uh, make a decision that they're going to go on to form red blood cells. Some make a decision to go on to form the platelets that cause blood clotting, and some make a decision that they'll form one or the other forms of white blood cells. Obviously, they don't actually decide this stuff. They just uh, uh, somehow in their DNA program, uh, uh, something makes them uh, go on to be what we call committed or differentiated towards red cells or white cells or platelets or whatever. Okay. Now, now you need to know that among the white blood cells in the body, there's actually different types of white blood cells. So if you look at your, just your uh, circulating blood, in your blood, there's all different types of white blood cells. There's ones that are called neutrophils that kill bacteria. There are ones that are called basophils, monocytes, all sorts of things. And then there's another bunch of white blood cells called the lymphocytes. And the lymphocytes are a very important component of our body's immune system, and they play their role in killing off viruses and killing off infections, etc., etc. So they're the lymphocytes. Okay, now, in the bone marrow, therefore, there's a bunch of cells that are called the lymphocyte progenitor cells, or the lymphoid stem cells, if you like. So they're not true granddaddy stem cells, 
but they're cells that are involved in pumping out lymphocytes and those normal lymphocytes then leave the bone marrow, go into the bloodstream, go into our lymph nodes and our lymph glands and our spleen and elsewhere and play a role in fighting infections. Okay, so in the bone marrow we have these cells called lymphoid progenitor cells or lymphoid stem cells if you like. Okay, so acute lymphoblastic leukemia is a leukemia that develops when one of those lymphoid stem cells becomes cancer and divides and proliferates and spreads through the bone marrow and then spills out into the bloodstream and that's leukemia. And because it's a lymphoid stem cell that's become malignant, then we call it acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Okay, now I hope that makes sense. That's why we call it ALL. Now I'll just tell you something more to just make life more complicated. There are two big different families of lymphocytes. There's the T cells and the B cells. And they're called T cells and B cells for rather obscure reasons. B cells are called B cells because of some organ that was found in the birds back when these uh, cells were first identified. So don't dwell on the letters. But anyway, there's B cells and T cells and so acute lymphoblastic leukemia is broadly divided into the ones that are a cancer of the B cell lymphoid stem cells and ones that are a cancer of the T cells and that's an important distinction that we'll come to later. The great majority in children are B cell progenitor acute lymphoblastic leukemia but about 15% of T cell disease. That one's more common in teenagers but it occurs at all ages. Okay, so that's why we call it acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and now I think I'll call it ALL. All right, so this is the commonest form of cancer in childhood. This makes up about 30% of childhood cancer. So, you know, it's about, if you look at a, a newborn child, then about one in 600 children will go on to develop cancer or leukemia during childhood say up to about age 15 or 16. So about one in 600 get some sort of cancer or leukemia. Okay, so acute lymphoblastic leukemia represents 30% of that. So I guess, I don't know, what's that, about one in 1800 or one in 2000 children will get acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Now, so that's pretty rare. Like childhood cancer is pretty rare. On the other hand, it's not crazy rare. It's not, uh, you know, if you have a, a big school of a thousand kids, then you might expect that every few years there might just be a child that could be affected by uh, a case of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So if you're a paediatric oncologist like me, ALL is the disease that you're seeing more often than any other disease, and it's, it's the disease that we are usually very well set up with very established protocols and procedures and we're normally all very experienced in treating ALL because it's our commonest disease. The next thing to say is that overall the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia has been hugely successful uh, over the last few decades. We've gone from a period in the 1950s and 60s when essentially uh, no one survived this disease and then with the addition of chemotherapy and then the refinements through clinical trials, etc., we now are at a situation where, I don't know, over about 80% of children with ALL will be permanently cured of their disease. Now, having said that, we, we can identify early on among the children with ALL those who are more likely to be cured and those who are less likely to be cured. Now, back to how children with ALL present to the healthcare system. And I covered some of this before in the earlier podcast, but just to remind you that the leukemia is occupying the bone marrow, and so the bone marrow is no longer doing what it should do. That is, it's not making normal blood cells. It's not making red blood cells as well as it should. It's not making platelets as well as it should, and they're important to stop bruising and bleeding. And it's not making white blood cells as well as it should. It's making plenty of white blood cells, but they're leukemic ones. 
and the leukemic ones are useless at doing what they're meant to do, which is fight infections. So children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, they may present with bone pain. Typically they're unwell. They might be off their food. They may have fevers from infections or from the disease itself. They may have bruises because of a low platelet count. And I mean a lot of bruises. I don't mean one bruise on the leg where the kid got kicked in the shins. I mean just spontaneous bruises all over the place. Uh, they may be very pale with anemia. The other thing that happens is that the leukemic cells uh, infiltrate various parts of the body and they, they like certain parts of the body more than others. So uh, those lymph glands that you have in your neck and your armpits and your groins, you know, they're normally there to fight infections, by the way. Well, they can get infiltrated with leukemic cells and become very big. So this varies. Some children don't have any lymph nodes that are enlarged. Some have lymph nodes the size of golf balls and tennis balls in their neck and uh, it varies very much in what you'll see. Sometimes the liver's enlarged, sometimes the spleen's enlarged, but uh, the key thing is that, you know, normally there is some sort of abnormality on the blood counts, that's the numbers of red cells and white cells and platelets, but also if, if uh, the blood is looked at under a microscope, the pathologist uh, may well see the leukemic cells circulating in the blood. By the way, those cells in the blood, they're called blasts. Now, blasts, or if you're in America, blasts, like, you know, blast off like a rocket ship, that's what they're called. Now, it's a funny-sounding name, I get it, but uh, the normal stem cells in the bone marrow, the normal ones, they are also called blasts or blasts, okay? And they're a normal population, but they're meant to be about 1% of your cells or something, and they're not meant to leak into the bloodstream. So what happens in leukemia is that the cells that look just like that under the microscope, instead of being 1% and staying in the bone marrow, you know, they may end up becoming over 90% or 99% of the cells in the bone marrow under a microscope could look like those blasts or blasts. And so, uh, and also they'll, they'll uh, make their way into the bloodstream, which is not where they're meant to be. So that's why it's lymphoblastic leukemia or lymphoblastic leukemia depending on whether you're British or American, I suppose. Anyway, all right. So, by hook or by crook, uh, the child with acute lymphoblastic leukemia has come to the attention of the healthcare system and eventually uh, uh, they've begun to suspect leukemia. Now, at this point, I should mention that almost all of the children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia have turned up to their doctors with various things over and over and you know, doctor said it was a virus and the doctor gave some antibiotics and the doctor did this and the doctor did that and, uh, and then eventually nothing gets better and the child turns out to have leukaemia. So this often leaves the parents a bit, uh, a bit angry, a bit feeling like the doctor missed it, that he should have been on to this. Well, I've got to say that the symptoms of acute lymphoblastic leukaemia are what we call nonspecific. There's a lot of time when a lot of kids turn up with a bit of a fever or a bit of a glands up in the neck or some, you know, bone pain or a bit off their food, you know, and most of the time they don't have leukemia. So, you know, I think that we've got we to gotta be fair on the local family doctors and the GPs, general practitioner doctors who, who, uh, who may not diagnose leukemia at the first visit because if they started, uh, you know, suggesting leukemia to every child that walked in their door with leukemia... <laughs> Uh, sorry, with a fever, they're, um, they're going to have an awful lot of very distressed parents all the time. And let's face it, leukaemia is much less common than a simple viral infection. But anyway, they finally come to the, you know, to the big hospital, to the children's hospitals, and now we're looking at, at working out what's going on. Well, first thing that we have to do is make the diagnosis, and that's done by doing a bone marrow test. So the child is anaesthetised usually, with a general anaesthetic uh, and then a needle is stuck into the, the pelvis bone. You know at the back, you know, just below your waist, if you feel down there, um, a bit lower than where your belt might sit, there's a, a hard bone there out to the side, not in the middle, but out to the side. That's called the, the pelvic crest or the iliac crest bone and a needle can be stuck into that and then the bone marrow is sucked out like a liquid and then tested in the lab. and uh, 
it's a it's a pretty basic procedure you know we do it on adults without any anesthetic but it's painful so we normally knock kids out with a general anesthetic I would say normally but not always sometimes uh, we need a quick answer or the anesthetic isn't available and you know there's plenty of units that do it with a little bit of sedation or just with local anesthetic so in any case the bone marrow is collected and slides are made looked at and then we can decide whether the child has acute leukemia and then with further tests whether it's this lymphoblastic leukemia so that's how we diagnose the disease now in those first few days there's other stuff to do firstly the child might be unwell the child uh, needs to be stabilized and uh, so if they have very low blood counts they may need a blood transfusion they may need a platelet transfusion they may need antibiotics if there's fevers and even though we don't know where the infections from we very often give antibiotics to children like this who are feverish because we can't rely on them to kill the germs so those antibiotics are normally through the vein into, a, into an intravenous line and often two or three antibiotics at once just to make sure we kill every germ in sight. Like I said, the bone marrow test is done. If we really suspect leukemia, then at the same time we'll normally do a lumbar puncture and that's a, that's a, you know, it's a bit like an epidural, you know, when ladies have an epidural to have a baby, uh, a needle down there uh, between the lumbar vertebrae but the needle goes in just a few more millimetres until it hits the spinal fluid and then we collect some spinal fluid. And we do that to send it off to the lab and see if there's leukemic cells in the spinal fluid because that's one of these weird places where leukemia can go. And if we find that, then we know we have to uh, uh, change the treatment to adjust for that. The other thing that we would normally do at our hospital is put in something called a central line. This is a, instead of one of those drips in the back of your hands that you have, that have to be replaced every couple of days. Well, this is one where we get the surgeon to put in a, a, a line, usually up underneath the collarbone. Uh, it goes in under the skin, under the collarbone, tracks up, up to the neck, under the skin, into a big vein, the jugular vein, and then tracks down the jugular vein almost to the heart or even into the heart. And this is a, this is a, a wide bore line. It's about as thick as your, uh, uh, your headphone cable or your telephone cable, and it stays in for months and months and months and we can use it throughout the treatment of leukemia and I'll do another podcast on this all about central lines they solve a lot of problems they create a few of their own but we can't really manage without one anyway so that's those first few days stabilize the child make a diagnosis with a bone marrow test and a lumbar puncture and put in a central line and then we can get on with treating the disease okay so now first off we have to start uh, uh, treatment for the first month to try to achieve remission okay remission means uh, we do another bone marrow test and instead of seeing leukemic cells occupying all the bone marrow we no longer see the leukemic cells or let's say we see blast cells but under five percent of the bone marrow now being blasts whereas it used to be 90 or 95 percent for instance typically so we have to start on some drugs. Now the first drug that's uh, almost always given is uh, a drug called prednisone or dexamethasone. This is one of the steroid drugs um, uh, and it's, uh, it's not even a, it's not purely a cancer drug. You know, people take it for asthma, they take it for arthritis, they take it for all sorts of things. Uh, but it's, uh, it happens to kill lymphoid leukemic cells. Don't ask me why, just does. But it's not a steroid like, uh, you know, when you hear the, um, uh, you know, the people that cheat in weightlifting and athletics and they're on anabolic steroids. It's not one of those steroids. It's a different family. It's called a corticosteroid, not an anabolic steroid. Anyway, we, uh, the treatment normally starts with that. Uh, normally starts with uh, a drug actually injected into the spinal fluid. Remember how I said we'd take a sample from the spinal fluid and then we'd uh, test it for leukemic cells in the spinal fluid? Well, whether those cells are detected or not, the treatment of ALL requires that we put drugs into the spinal fluid. And so there's one or two chemotherapy drugs that are used for this. It's usually a drug called methotrexate. So it's a lumbar puncture. Take the fluid sample connect a syringe and slowly inject the methotrexate into the spinal fluid. So in a 
big paediatric oncology unit like my own. We're doing dozens of these every week on children, and uh, it sounds a bit freaky. It's called intrathecal chemo, thecal, T-H-E-C-A-L, intrathecal chemotherapy. Uh, by and large, it's very safe, and I'll be talking about it more later. But it is an essential component of treating ALL. And then other chemotherapy drugs can be given. So I'll talk about all the drugs later on. But in that first month, we're normally giving uh, the prednisone, a drug called vincristine, a drug called asparaginase, and often a drug called dornarubicin, and the lumbar punctures, and that makes up that first month of treatment. Now, you know, typically we're giving drugs on two days a week, and we're giving the prednisone three times a day, and uh, back and forth to the hospital. A lot of the time, you don't need to stay in hospital for this. After the child is stabilised and they've got used to the central line, then they can normally be discharged from hospital if they haven't got fevers and provided the parents aren't too nervous and they've learnt all they need to know, they might be able to be discharged from hospital and they usually are after about a week, I suppose, in our hands. And then they can go home, take the prednisone and come back to the hospital two or three times a week for the other drugs. Now, there's other problems that develop in that time. You remember the child still has uh, bone marrow that isn't working well, so they often end up needing more blood transfusions or platelet transfusions, and uh, they may feel sick from the drugs, and there may be side effects from the drugs, and we'll talk about all of them uh, later on. But, you know, it's easy to end up back in hospital with fevers or some other side effect and, and so on. It's a, you know, it's a pretty busy first month, first four weeks, and uh, they're strong drugs, and, uh, you know, we really just sort of have to soldier on giving them. There's no holding back. We've just got to kill the leukaemia because, well, basically things aren't going to get better until we kill the leukaemia. So it's, it's a busy month and back and forth to hospital and often ending up in hospital and a little bit dangerous, but, you know, it's manageable. Okay. And like I said, at the end of that month, then we can uh, do another bone marrow test and see whether the leukaemic cells are now under 5%. And that's what you call remission, provided the spinal fluid's clear and the uh, leukemic cells are under 5%. Well, that's step one. Now, that doesn't mean the leukemia is cured, unfortunately, but it's a vital first step in getting to the cure of the leukemia. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big milestone. The good news is that just about every child with ALL goes into remission you know, like 98% of children with ALL will go into remission uh, by the end of that first month. And if they don't, well, that's pretty serious, by the way. So the leukaemia is still there. There's, it's gone from zillions and gazillions of leukaemia cells to just billions and billions, I suppose. There's still plenty of leukaemia, and so further treatment is needed. So typically, it's a change of drugs after the first month onto another batch of drugs for a month or two, then another batch of drugs for a month or two, then maybe give the first month all over again, then the second month all over again. And, you know, in, in a sort of standard case of ALL, we might be giving big, strong drugs through the central line, you know, for five or six months uh, to, to totally wipe out the leukaemia. And after that, well, then you go into tablets uh, in the standard case of leukaemia, uh, what we call maintenance therapy. That's taking tablets every night, and uh, that goes on typically for about a year and a half. So the whole program to treat a child with ALL usually is about two years of treatment. Now, that first six months is, is very busy, very, what we say, full-on, <laughs> uh, dangerous, intensive, back and forth to hospital, lots of side effects, totally all-consuming for the family. Uh, it's manageable. People get through it, but I encourage them not to buy One Direction tickets or Taylor Swift tickets or Bruce Springsteen tickets because life is a bit unpredictable in those months. Um, so that's the real rough phase of treatment. Then the maintenance phase, well, life can improve a whole lot during maintenance, but still back and forth to hospital every few weeks for blood tests and uh, still with an immune system that's impaired. Uh, so still life isn't quite normal, but, you know, normally back at school, back at football training, back singing in the choir, whatever it is. During that two-year program, there's normally 
a series of those lumbar punctures with intrathecal chemotherapy. It depends which country you're in and which protocols you're on, whether you get them mostly in the first six months or whether you get them spread out over the two years. And, and only the rare patient needs radiotherapy as well to the brain, but that's a rare patient. Okay, now more to tell you. I said earlier that uh, ALL could be divided into two main groups, which were the, uh, the B-cell stem cell ones. They make up about 85% of childhood leukaemia. And then the T-cell ones. They make up about 15% of childhood leukaemia. So that's the broad distinction that we had up until, you know, into the sort of 80s and 90s. That was the main distinction, and it's still an important distinction. The, I guess just to mention the key thing about T-cell disease that tends to be different to the others. Firstly, T-cell disease is more common in teenagers. Uh, it occurs at all ages, but it is more common in teenagers. And in particular, it's associated with um, what we call a mediastinal mass. So, you know, I talked about having lymph glands up in the neck and so on. Well, big lymph glands are a feature of T-cell disease. But in particular, in your chest, uh, you know, uh, in front of your heart and, uh, you know, between the lungs, that's an area of your body called the mediastinum. And it's a normally a place where there is some uh, lymphoid tissue that's normal or lymph glands. Well, T-cell disease commonly gets a, a major, big enlargement of one of those lymph nodes in that area, the mediastinum. It's either of the lymph node or of a normal tissue called the thymus, T-H-Y-M-U-S, the thymus. Nothing to do with thyroid, it's the thymus. So that's what you call a mediastinal mass, and that's a feature of T-cell disease. You also get in a few other things. You get in Hodgkin's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but anyway, it's a feature of T-cell disease. And uh, it can be a big problem because it can compress your airway. You know how you breathe down your trachea and into your lungs? Well, the mass can end up... Uh, pushing on the airway and um, and making it hard to breathe and then and that's a big emergency because it's dangerous even to have an anaesthetic with such a lump. The other thing they get sometimes usually with the mediastinal mass is uh, what you call a pleural effusion. Pleural effusion. That's fluid that collects uh, and collects outside the lung. So if it's it's between your rib cage and your lung, that's called a pleural. P l e u r a l effusion, E-F-F-U-S-I-O-N. And that's just a feature of the disease. It's only rare that we have to do anything about it, like drain it, but anyway. And T-cell patients, you know, they often have very high white cell counts, you know. So a normal white count, remember, is 5, 10. Well, uh, in T-cell disease, it might be 100 or 500 or a million. You know, we can get very high risk, uh, high, high white cell counts. So... During that first month of treatment, remember we've stabilised the child, started the first month of treatment. Well, that bone marrow test we collected at the very beginning, well, it's been sent off to a number of different labs and they're analysing it to determine other features that go to the patient's risk group. So the risk group is all important in the treatment of ALL. What we want to know is, is the child at more or less risk of not being cured of their disease. Okay, so the standard risk group is usually the better group, or the, there may be a low risk group or a standard risk group, depending on which country and which consortium's trials you're being treated in. Uh, uh, there'll be low risk, standard risk group of patients. Now, they're most of the patients, and they're the ones where the outlook is best, and they're the ones where, you know, over 80% of patients will be permanently cured of their disease after this two-year program of therapy. So, so we want to identify patients that are in that group. And then the other group is what you call a high-risk group or even a very high-risk group. These are the patients who, right from the start, you can say that they're just not as likely to be cured of their disease if we just give them the usual treatment. So they're the ones where uh, we'll give, if you just give the usual treatment, Maybe they'll go into remission, maybe they won't, uh, but even if they do, they'll be at a heightened risk of the leukaemia one day coming back again, uh, 
growing back again and starting all over again. That's called a relapse. That's like the worst thing that can possibly happen. So the high-risk patients or the very high-risk patients, they're the ones who are at the greatest risk of a relapse of the disease. And a relapse, like I said, it's the worst thing that can happen because it, it, it makes the disease very hard to cure. And they're the ones where we have to talk about bone marrow transplants and and you know, they are patients who may be destined not to survive the illness. So the bone marrow has been off at the lab and it's being tested for all sorts of things. And um, one of the things I'll talk to you about now is what we call cytogenetics. Cytogenetics, that's the study of your chromosomes, okay? So I don't know what you know about DNA and chromosomes, but in our cells, uh, in the nucleus of every cell, we have uh, 46 chromosomes. And it's 46XX if you're a girl and 46XY if you're a boy. And, you know, you've inherited half of this chromosomal stuff from your mother and half of it from your father. Anyway, the chromosomes are the structures in the cell that all the DNA is in. Now, you've heard of DNA, right? The DNA is the thing that contains the code to... Uh, to define who we are as individuals and to provide the recipes that cells need to make all the different chemicals, uh, the, the chemicals that make for muscles, for hair, for enzymes, for, for everything. The DNA is everything. Okay. Now, children with leukemia, with ALL, now, they are born with, mostly, with normal chromosomes, normal DNA, okay? Uh, but the leukemic cells, somewhere along the line, in becoming malignant, they have developed abnormalities in the DNA. And those abnormalities can be detected by analysing the chromosomes of the leukemic cells. So it's not that, it's not that they inherited this, uh, this uh, abnormal DNA. It's the leukemic cells have developed it later on in life. Uh, maybe just a freaky accident. I don't know. We don't know why it happens. One day we will. But for now, we think of it as some freaky accident that uh, a cell made a mistake and ends up with uh, some abnormality in the DNA and in the chromosomes. So chromosomes are tested in the cytogenetic lab and they look for particular patterns of abnormalities. And some of them are good abnormalities. They mean that you're more likely to be cured of leukemia and some are bad and make the patient a high risk or a very high risk patient. So an example is, well, just count how many chromosomes are in the cells. You're meant to have 46, okay? Well, some leukemic cells have 53 chromosomes or 54 or 57. They've just got extra copies of chromosomes. That's weird, but anyway, they just do. Uh, and that's called hyperdiploidy. And a hyperdiploid form of ALL, if your leukemic cells have extra chromosomes, and that's what you call hyperdiploid, well, that tends to be the group of patients who are most likely to be cured of the disease. It's a good thing to find. It, it suggests that the treatment will work. It only suggests it and improves the odds, I guess. Another abnormality that we like to find is a, what you call a translocation between chromosomes 12 and 21. So the chromosomes all have numbers. Well, in about a quarter of children with B progenitor ALL, uh, we find that chromosome 12 and chromosome 21 have swapped a bit of their structure with each other. And this is something that cytogenetic people can work out, uh, sometimes needing special tests. But if we find that, well, that tends to be, you know, a more favourable finding. That tends to fit with, a, again, with a group with a, a good outlook. On the other hand, there are abnormalities that we can find that suggest the patient won't be cured with just standard therapy. Uh, there's one called the Philadelphia chromosome. That's where chromosome 9 and chromosome 22 have swapped some information. Uh, that's a, a very well-described translocation uh, the Philadelphia chromosome. 
Um, it's seen in adult leukemia as well, a chronic myeloid leukemia, but it is seen in about 5% of ALL patients and it makes for a more severe form of ALL, often needs some special new drugs added and may need a bone marrow transplant. There's abnormalities of chromosome 11. We see those usually in infants, you know, under the age of one, uh, uh, and, and that's an unfavorable finding. Anyway, there's a whole series of these abnormalities that the cytogenetics lab looks for, and the molecular lab might also look for them using different techniques. There's all sorts of ways now to look for these uh, biological signs of whether a leukemia is a more favorable or a less favorable form. Because you can't tell just looking at the child or just looking with a microscope, you really need all these other tests. The other one I should have mentioned earlier is the, uh, that the, uh, the age of the patient and the height of the white cell count also are important to determining the risk group. Uh, so the best uh, age to be is between about 2 and 10 years of age. Under the age of 1 is an unfavorable form of acute lymphoblastic leukemia generally. And over the age of 10 has been considered unfavorable. Now that might be because there's more T-cell patients in there or more of other things. But anyway, historically over the age of 10 was considered a higher risk group. Whether it stays a high risk group these days is, is up for debate and not universally the case. The other thing is measure the white blood cell count, that, that is the leukemia cell count in the bloodstream at diagnosis, and over about uh, 50,000, or a white cell count above 50, that's considered an unfavorable uh, finding. So there's these agreed um, risk criteria in the US National Cancer Institute that go to the age and the white cell count, and these things can be done. And then the next thing that you look at to determine the patient's risk group, that is, their likelihood of being cured or not, is to look at, well, what happens in that first month of treatment? Uh, how quickly do they respond to the treatment? Now, the best example of this is what the German uh, group, the BFM group, Berlin, Frankfurt, Münster, BFM group, what they worked out, and now all of Europe uses, and more and more of the rest of the world, including Australia, uses, uh, and that's called the prednisone response. So remember I said we give prednisone uh, to kill the leukemia. Well, the Germans worked out that they would just give prednisone in the first week and one intrathecal chemotherapy injection in the spinal fluid. So that's all they would give. They wouldn't give all the other drugs, just the prednisone and the lumbar puncture, and then look at the blood on day eight of prednisone and see if the leukemic count had dropped below the magic figure of 1,000. And if it had, that was a favorable response. And if it was above 1,000, that's called a prednisone poor responder. And those patients are less likely to be cured with standard therapy and so need stronger therapy. The Americans have used uh, other ways of looking at this early response. They tended to look at a bone marrow test done on day 15 to see, well, how much have things improved within those two weeks? Uh, and, uh, but everybody looks on about day 33 uh, with a bone marrow to see if the patient's gone into remission. And more recently, we don't just look with a microscope to see if they've gone into remission, but we use sophisticated molecular technologies to measure what we call minimal residual disease. And I'll talk about that in a separate podcast. But basically, these days, we've worked out how we can detect one leukemic cell in a million normal cells. Uh, you can't do that with the naked eye in a microscope, but you need these sophisticated molecular techniques. So now we can measure on day 15 or day 33 or even further on into treatment exactly how frequent are the residual leukemic cells. And this all goes to guiding us about whether we can just use the standard risk therapy or whether we need something stronger. Now, the standard risk therapy is what I talked about before. Typically, about six months of strong, intensive drugs, then 18 months of tablets, and that's, that's strong treatment, okay? But the high-risk therapy is even stronger. I mean, longer periods of higher doses of drugs, more side effects, maybe even a bone marrow transplant in some situations. Uh, so it's all about can we use more or less treatment. And then it, 
if we find uh, leukemia cells in the lumbar puncture, of course, we might have to use more lumbar punctures than usual. And, you know, a typical protocol might give the lumbar puncture intrathecal chemotherapy, I don't know, 11 times, 10 or 11 times. You may have to use more if we find leukemia in the spinal fluid. The uh, rare patient needs radiotherapy to the whole brain as well. Okay, so all that was happening during that first month, refining the risk group and then determining what to go on with uh, after that first month of therapy. Now, um, I will have separate podcasts that go through all the different drugs and all their different side effects one by one in great detail, but I'll just list some of the main drugs now that are used. But do remember that uh, different protocols have emerged from uh, from Germany, from the United States, from Britain, from France, from Australia, from elsewhere. And not every protocol has the same combination of drugs. And, uh, but, but be reassured that the protocols have all emerged out of major research studies and uh, uh, have all been validated in hundreds of patients to determine what to do. But historically, they may, may have emerged from different directions, and so there can be variations and uh, so I'll just make some general comments on the main drugs that are used in the treatment of ALL. So like I said, there's prednisone or dexamethasone. These are normally given by mouth, you know, twice or three times a day. They're the steroid drugs, and they're the ones that are, uh, may make the child eat a lot. So sometimes children with ALL end up looking uh, a, bit, a bit bloated in the face. They put on some weight and, and uh, a bit chubby. Uh, I say sometimes, maybe I should say almost all the time that's what happens. These ones can also cause children to be grumpy. I find about 90% of children on these steroid drugs to be a bit grumpy, a bit unreasonable, irritable, a bit prone to tantrums, and about 10% of children become totally angelic, uh, uh, sweet, cooperative, uh, sometimes more than they ever were before in life. So, uh, but they're important drugs, they've got to be given. Uh, um, uh, they sound like just normal basic drugs, but they're key drugs to killing ALL cells. Uh, almost all children will get a drug called vincristine given through the central line. Uh, that's one of the ones that makes the hair fall out. It causes constipation as well. There's a drug called asparaginase, and there's different brands of asparaginase. There's short-acting ones, there's long-acting ones, there's intramuscular injection ones, you know, into the leg or the buttock. There's ones that go into the central line. Uh, it's a key drug for ALL. Uh, it's got its own side effects. We need to um, watch out for irritation of the pancreas, for allergic reactions, blood clotting, all sorts of things. There's a family of drugs called the anthracyclines. They include dornorubicin, doxorubicin. These are given through the central line as well. They're normally red in colour. They make the hair fall out. They can cause mouth ulcers, low blood counts. Get that? Low blood counts. The leukemia was already causing low blood counts. Well, unfortunately, many of the drugs we use to treat leukemia also cause low blood counts. So uh, we, we end up, even when the leukemia is long gone and we can't see it with the microscope, that we're still dealing with low blood counts, but this time caused by the chemotherapy. Cyclophosphamide might be given another drug into the vein. It also causes low blood counts. There's a drug called cytosine arabinoside or ARA-C. It's also given into the central line, can cause nausea, low blood counts. And then in that maintenance phase of treatment I talked about, you know that 18 months of tablets? Well, that's normally based on a, a medicine that's given every night, and has to be at night, uh, usually a tablet given by mouth, called 6-mercaptopurine, or 6-MP, every night for a year and a half, night after night. And then in our protocols here in Australia, which are the same as the German ones and pretty similar to American ones, uh, there might be methotrexate tablets given, again by mouth, and that's uh, once a week usually. And those drugs are fiddled up and down to get them just right. And there's more lumbar punctures during treatment and so on. Anyway, uh, I'll, like I said, I'll go through all of those drugs in some more detail another time. And, uh, but just to stress again, the different units will have different protocols for these drugs. There will be drugs that I haven't mentioned. Uh, there will be stronger combinations of these drugs in the higher risk patients. 
and uh, uh, these are just to be taken as some general comments. Um, but anyway, we go through all this uh, treatment and finally, suppose we're on the standard risk protocol, we get to this end of our two years of treatment and then that's when the treatment ends. <sighs> Hooray. All right, end of treatment. It's a, it's a big time. It can be a bit, bit of an emotional time for families. Um, the drug's no longer there. Uh, anyway, what happens then? Well, many units do another bone marrow test just to check with the microscope and with the DNA tests that, that the leukaemia is still not detectable. Not everyone does, but we tend to. We do a bone marrow test just to confirm that the child is still in remission. We do a lumbar puncture to check the spinal fluid is still clear. And if it is, if the bone marrow is in remission and the spinal fluid's clear, then we stop giving the chemotherapy and uh, then we move into a phase of what we call surveillance. Surveillance. So now we've just got to check for the next few years that the leukemia doesn't grow back, that, the, that it doesn't relapse. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen. So typically we see the children, I don't know, every month in the first year off treatment, see them, check them over, check the liver, spleen, lymph nodes, check for testicles, believe it or not, in boys. That's a site where ALL likes to relapse if it's going to. And do a full blood count. And this is all just to check that there's no sign of the leukemia coming back. That's called surveillance. And if it's going to come back, well, I guess it's in that first year off treatment, first two years off treatment. That would be the time where it's more likely to come back. Uh, once you get to about two years from the end of therapy, then the risk of relapse becomes much reduced. And uh, it's not zero. We keep watching children. I don't know, we usually watch them for about five years. Uh, but really, if it hasn't come back after two years, it's unlikely to. If it, after three or four or five, it's very unlikely to. Unfortunately, there are some patients, believe it or not, who can have a relapse six or seven or eight years later. That's very, very rare, but it does happen. Anyway, so that's the surveillance phase. And then after a while, we stop worrying about the leukemia and we, um, and, uh, we have to think then more and more, well, what about how is the child? Have there been any long-term side effects of all this? There's been a lot of side effects during the treatment, but most of them are what you call acute side effects. They're things that happen and then get better. Well, what about some permanent side effects? Well, uh, our drugs are chosen very much with that in mind. Uh, we have to maintain a good chance of curing the disease, but if we can avoid long-term side effects, all the better. And uh, long-term side effects of therapy will be a whole series of podcasts to talk about. Just to say, I guess in general, that the patients that go through a standard risk protocol of acute lymphoblastic leukemia chemotherapy, that that uh, they, they can emerge from it and get on with life as usual and in many cases enjoy very good quality of life. Many will seem to be perfectly healthy and will be. I had a patient once play, you know, at the top level of uh, our Australian, oh, not Australian, but one of our rugby football codes. I have children that, you know, I've seen go into adult life, married with children, uh, getting on with life. Um, on the other hand, there, there are uh, a group that have some problems. Uh, all those steroids can cause weight gain and then they need to shift that weight and go back to their normal weight. Some of them end up with a, what we call a metabolic syndrome. It's a bit pre-diabetic-y. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not common, I suppose, but it's well described. Some may have uh, some damage to their bones from the steroids. Remember the um, osteoporosis that uh, old people get? They, you know, the steroids can cause something a bit like that in the hip bones and knee bones, and that's particularly more common in the teenage patients, so we have to be watching for that, and more and more we're looking at intervening with drugs to protect the bones, etc. The red drugs I mentioned, the anthracyclines, they can damage the heart if you give too much. Uh, we don't tend to give super high amounts in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but uh, we would normally have checked the heart with a heart ultrasound. It's called an echocardiogram. We'd normally check that during treatment and keep an eye on the heart function in the years afterwards. Um, 
But most of the time we would find cardiac function well maintained, but you know, who knows, 20, 30, 50 years later we're still learning what to expect. What about having children? Well, like I said, I've got plenty of patients who've been cured of this disease and gone on and had children. Uh, the key, uh, key feature in acute lymphoblastic leukemia is what drugs did you have to use to cure the disease? And um, you know, cyclophosphamide is in many ALL protocols. I guess that's one of the key drugs that can cause impaired fertility. Our standard risk protocols only have about three grams per meter squared of cyclophosphamide, only a modest dose, and could often be optimistic that fertility would not be affected. Uh, I guess there's no guarantees, and uh, um, you know, often at diagnosis we have a fertility consultation to see someone to see whether we should be harvesting uh, ovary and or eggs or uh, sperm banking. Uh, it's all a bit difficult. Sper sperm banking's fine, but the harvesting of ovary uh, for future use is um, a bit more complicated because the ovary is likely to be infiltrated with leukemic cells as well. So you wouldn't want to go re-implanting that at a later date. So it's a whole conversation to be had and, again, the subject of another podcast. Uh, what about, I don't know, sometimes if you Google it, you'll find people saying, well, yeah, chemotherapy causes cancer. So what, what about that? Well, look, it is true. Uh, Remember about one in three of us in the Western world are going to die of cancer. One in three, right? Adults. When we're old, hopefully. Well, um, if you've had chemotherapy for leukemia, well, you are at heightened risk, a slightly higher risk of getting cancer later in life, getting another leukemia, for instance. You are at a slightly higher risk, but that risk is a slight risk. Uh, Sure, we'd like to get rid of the offending drugs, and one day we will. Uh, but there are protocols of treatment that bring even greater risk of second malignancy than the ALL protocols. So yes, it is something to know about, uh, and I always tell the families about it, but it's only a slight elevation of risk. So anyway, look, that's it for acute lymphoblastic leukemia for now. I mean, to sum up, remember it's the commonest form of childhood cancer, about 30% of childhood cancer. We've had great success in treating it, and the majority of patients have a very good chance to be permanently cured of the disease. Uh, there are what we call risk groups, which we have to define with all our molecular and chromosome tests, and they can work out patients that are at uh, a very good chance of being cured and ones who are at a less good chance and need stronger treatment or even bone marrow transplants. Our standard treatment is a two-year program of treatment, about six months of strong drugs, 18 months of tablets and a series of lumbar punctures and intrathecal chemotherapy injections. That's for the standard risk patient. And um, after we finish treatment, we go into a phase of surveillance and for a few years after the end of treatment, we're just checking that the leukemia has not relapsed and, uh, and starting then to focus on whether there were any long-term side effects of the treatment. Anyway, thank you for listening today. That's where I'll stop. I uh, look forward to uh, sharing some more facts with you in upcoming uh, episodes of this All About Childhood Cancer podcast. Remember, I'm Dr. Jeff, and uh, so it's bye for now.